sin, you know, where, where people we love are getting, whoa, okay, are getting baptized and, and you know, in these baptisms, these believers of Jesus Christ and, and uh, children of believers receiving the sign of baptism, you know you're signing up for something. You know you're being identified with a movement. You're being identified with something that Jesus Christ has begun and Jesus Christ is going to finish. A worldwide movement of love in which Jesus comes into people's lives and changes people's lives. And he even uses people like us. And it is, it is glorious and sometimes it is painful, but it's not boring. Because if it's boring, it's probably not real Christianity. Amen? So, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the pain today. And it's not going to be a complete downer. The things that we're talking about happen in the dead of night. And something very cool happens at daybreak. So we need to ask the Lord to help us to study the Word of God. So before you get out your Bibles and turn to the passage, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Lord, we are so thankful to you for all that we have seen just today. We've seen people pour out their hearts in worship to a holy God. You are holy. You are so high above us. Your ways are past finding out. And you are full of light and there is no darkness in you at all. And Lord, we thank you so much for revealing to us in your word something of the glory of who you are. And we pray that you'd enable us to listen with hearts that are wide open. Would you open up the eyes of our heart, our spiritual lives, our spiritual inner person, so that we can receive what your spirit has to say to the church this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible or a telephone with a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to start at verse 47. Before we read, you know, Peter understood that there would be some aspects of his life in Christ that would be a fight. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, he said that, the, that there's the devil is, is like a roaring lion and he's seeking whom he may devour. He said that there will be times when people don't understand your devotion to Jesus Christ. And they're going to rough you up for it. He said that Jesus suffered for us. Peter wrote many years after this story. He said, Jesus suffered for us, leaving an example that we could follow in his steps. That if we're insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. But Peter didn't always get this. He didn't always have that perspective. He wasn't born with it. Neither you and neither was I. Peter's world as he knew it 
was falling apart in this passage that we're going to look at. And there was nothing he could do about it. Listen to God's word. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. We'll start. A little context. Jesus has just been praying about what he is about to do. He has come to his father. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, then please, let's make that other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus has surrendered to the Father, and he is about to go to the cross to die for our sins. And so he has been praying while his disciples, whom he said, hey, can you pray with me? And they said, sure, Lord, and then they start to fall asleep. And then he comes and wakes them up three times, and finally he's waking them up and says, look, uh, our prayer meeting's over. I know you slept through it, but they're coming to get me now. And so while he is still speaking to his disciples, it says in verse 47, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers in the temples of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Thursday night, it's Passover. The Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, who is Jesus Christ, is about to be offered up for the sins of his people. Jesus has just celebrated Passover with his disciples. And then knowing that he was about to give his life to save us, he agonized with his father in the garden about the price that he would have to pay, and there is no other way. He has to drink the cup of God's righteous judgment so that you and I could belong to him, forgiven and righteous and adopted into his family with eternal life together and no condemnation. And that's what it took. The gospel is so serious business. There's no cheap grace. The time has come. It's the hour of darkness. It's the hour that Judas hands Jesus over to the people that are going to kill him. And... I read somewhere, we're we're, we're adding everything up. It looks like there are probably about 600 people out there in the dead of night coming to a garden to arrest one man, Jesus. And then you know what John says. John, the apostle in in, in the book of John, says that when, when they approached, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. He did, now, now your, your, your English translation says, I am he. The word he isn't there. You know why? Because Jesus remembers Exodus chapter 3 when God comes to Moses as the, in, in this, in this um, 
you know, there's a, there's a bush that attracts Moses' attention. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I am. I am. Jesus is almighty God. And when he says, I am, the whole troop of soldiers fell over on their backs by the power of his word. So, at that point, Peter begins to get an idea. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, at this point, it is the master is being taken away from the disciples. The band is breaking up. Life as Peter knew it is over. Those days of Jesus taking tours with his 12 disciples, preaching about the kingdom and healing people and raising the dead and casting out demons and debating religious professionals and crowds of people eating out of his hands, those days are over and it will never be like it was. Those days are never coming back. It's the end of an era. You remember times you wish you could go back to? You felt like they were maybe simpler, they were happier, they were more productive, you were more cutting edge, your family was more intact, your life was more the way you think it should be, your kids were doing better, but it's gone and it ain't coming back. But hang on, there's a future for you. And that's what this passage is going to proclaim, that there is a future for you when life has fallen apart. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus is silently allows himself to be arrested and put on the fast track for capital punishment, and there's nothing Peter or anybody else can do about it, or is there? Or is there? Peter gets this idea. He said back in verse 36 that we should have swords. And Peter's going, hey, can we use them now? I mean, these disciples are pumped. If they, if this had been the, you know, if guns had been invented, they would be searching through the catalog, ordering semi-automatics. They're starting to get kind of like, ooh, we're going to have ourselves a little throwdown here, and it's a, it's it's, it's going to be it's going to be ugly, and maybe I'll just die a hero, but that would be better than letting all this happen because Peter has gotten into his head. It's his job to keep anything bad from happening to Jesus. If you stuck with us in the in the in this preaching on the Gospel of Luke for the last what two three years, however long it's been, you 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 Peter keeps showing up as somebody who tries to protect Jesus from anything bad, and so um, I got the sword. Is this where we get to use it? So Peter goes for the servant of the high priest with his sword. Oh, by the way, it doesn't say Peter did it in the Book of Luke, but John outed him. Uh, if you look at the book, if the book of John in the chapter 18, that's where we find out it actually was Peter doing the slashing. So after Peter has done his slashing to save Jesus, when actually Jesus is trying is going to save Peter, Jesus does not turn around to Peter and say, "Well done, I feel safe now." Jesus fixes the man's ear. And then he rebukes the disciples and he says, no more of this. No more of this. Jesus doesn't need your 
anger. And Jesus doesn't need your violence. Years later, Jesus' brother James wrote, The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, because something in the very nature of the people of God has changed. Not only is the band broken up, not only is the old ministry team gone, but the old God's people being a nation is gone. No more wars against the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Moabites. No more of God's people using weapons against the pagans. Those days are over too. No more of this. No more of this. The kingdom of God does not advance through violence. The nations of the world and even some religions try to advance by using violence. But the kingdom of God does not advance by killing. The kingdom of God advances by what? Dying. You know, I had a conversation with one of my customers. I'm a piano tuner, and I go into people's houses, and I sit in their living rooms, and we get to talking. And since I'm kind of a talky person, and I'm, I, I, God has made me a listener as well. So I listen, and sometimes I'm late for my next appointment because the customer has so much to say. So I've got this one customer I love to talk to, and he's a Christian like us, and he loves the Lord. But, but he's a little off on a couple of things. But he's, he's, he's sitting there talking to me about how we need to reclaim our rights. We need to get religious freedom back. We need to fight for our freedom. We need to get religious freedom. And then I gave him my strangers and aliens speech, which some of you have heard if you remember our study in 1 Peter. The strangers and aliens speech goes something like this. We're not at home. We're not here to dominate. We are the church. And the church finds itself in all these different cultures that are usually hostile to the plan and the program of Jesus. Therefore, we're going to get kicked around, and sometimes we're going to get persecuted. In some places, Christianity is, become, is going to become illegal, and that's the way the Bible envisions things. And he says, so what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to roll over and play dead? And I think God gave me this. I said, no, we're not supposed to roll over and play dead. We're supposed to die. And this is how the kingdom of God advances. So Peter tries to save Jesus by force and violence, but Jesus is on his way to save Peter by surrender and weakness. The kingdom of God is like nothing nothing anybody has ever dreamed up in his or or her human mind. Violence is not the answer, but violence is already part of the story. Ever since Adam and Eve's first kids, there has been violence in the world. And the Prince of Peace, Jesus, is about to accept violence against him in order to save those who believe, no matter how much violence they have done in their past. He made peace. It says in Romans chapter 5 that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his finished work, through what he has done for us. We now have peace with God. So God doesn't need your violence, and the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, but is there still a fight for the Christian? Is there still a fight? Does anybody remember the big word that John used last week? He used it quite a lot. It even showed up in the title. What was the, what was the word? Anybody, anybody here, you remember? 
Surrender. Thank you. Good. I know you feel better about that. Now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you a little bit further. Two weeks ago, when Pastor Tim preached, he preached about something else. And do you, does anybody remember? And if nobody says anything, Tim, you can just tell us. But what, what, what was the thing that he was talking about? Failing and what else? Spiritual warfare. So which is it? Is it surrender or is it spiritual warfare? And the answer is yes. Jesus surrendered himself, not to his enemies, but to God. He surrendered to the plan of God. And in surrendering to God, Jesus engages in spiritual warfare, defeating the principalities and the powers of darkness once and for all. As the book of Hebrews said, through death, Jesus would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus did his great work by dying, by surrendering. Jesus surrenders to God and surrendering to God engages in frontline spiritual warfare, devastating the enemies of God forever. It's the same thing for the church. Put away your swords, put away your rights, put away your demands, and surrender to God and fight the good fight, not against other believers, not against your wife, not against your government, not against some other political party, but against the darkness, because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Jesus has won the war, and you are fighting the battles for the winning side, because this is the dawn of a new day. Let's talk about the new day coming up. Verse 54. Verse 54. They seized him. They seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. And Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him. He, too, is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter follows at a distance. He ends up in the courtyard of the house of the high priest where they're going to have a bogus trial with the purpose of getting Jesus killed. What is going on with Peter? Is he scared? Did he just wimp out? Is he scared of the slave girl? You know, some folks who write and preach about this passage say that Peter got scared. Shame on Peter. I think there's more to it than that. 
I think it's more complicated than that. Peter is not a coward. I mean, cowards do not whip out an 18-inch sword and slash off the ear of a soldier in front of 600 soldiers to try to defend his Lord. I think Peter is not scared. I think Peter is stinking mad. In his mind, he's going over the fact Jesus blessed the man that Peter was trying to kill and that Jesus doesn't rebuke the soldiers, but he rebukes the disciples. Look at Peter's history. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise again. And Peter, along with everybody else, had no idea what he was talking about. There was another time where Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of evil people and I am going to be, uh, I'm going to be killed. And, and, and Peter said, no way, uh-uh, that is not going to happen to you as long as I have anything to do with it. And Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter and puts him in league with Satan. All Peter wants to do is to keep bad things from happening to Jesus because he loves Jesus. But Jesus heals his enemies and yells at him. What's he supposed to do with that? That might not set too well with any of us sitting here, right? You know, you want to hear attaboy. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah, you, you showed a little, mm, you know, a little uh, chutzpah in that move. Way to go. That's what you'd like to hear from the master, the one that you love. The one that you know is special. The one that, 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 that commands the wind and the waves. And, 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 you know, that you're getting more and more of an understanding of just who he is and how awesome he is. And he doesn't say, attaboy, after you just risked your life. So he's going over this in his head. And he's going, forget it. Forget it. I'm not risking my life for a kingdom that's not going anywhere and is about to lose the king. And I'm not in the mood for a press conference. So leave me alone. You can, you can relate, right? You've been there? But the story, this story is here not to say, don't be like Peter or else you'll blow it too. The story is not, be careful of what your anger can make you do. You better watch out. This story is not an Aesop's fable with a moral at the end. This story is about Jesus saving you. The gospel, I have found many times, as, I've read the, as I read the Bible, I find that the gospel is not so much about prevention. It's about redemption. Now, you read the book of Proverbs, and you can find out how to stay out of a lot of messes. To, you know, it'll help you. You gain wisdom. That's good. But we can't stay out of all the messes. And what the Bible when the Bible talks about somebody blowing it like this, the Bible is not saying, you better, you, better, you better watch your, you know, watch these little signs, because then you can maybe avoid what Peter fell into. I think what the Bible is trying to tell you is that God is going to use all of this in a, in a sovereign way as he weaves together all these events and it's not about Peter at all, and it's not about you reforming your behavior by paying attention to some good principles in the Bible so that you'll do better. What the Bible is talking about here is something deeper. Let's, let's dig in a little bit here, because this is at the end. This is the dawn. This is the dawn of a new day. 
The rooster has crowed. The sun is beginning to come up. And after Peter did the thing that he's really famous for, you know, four Gospels, you know, I can just imagine where Peter, you know, realizes that, that, uh, that, that Luke and, and Mark and Matthew, okay, am I, do I have to be in all three? And then John writes one later on. John, John, hey, John, 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 don't. Can you please not put that in? John puts it in, too. All four Gospels. How would you like to have that? You know, the, the, the worst, the biggest, uh, the, 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 the biggest blowout sin in your life to be in all four Gospels right there so everybody thousands of years later could read about it. The rooster crows, but something beautiful happens. Perhaps when Jesus is being led from from one of the priests to another, you know, to another trial. You know, Peter's out there in the courtyard cussing the guy out. <laughs> That's what it says in another gospel. He's, he, you know, he starts calling down curses. And then Jesus and Peter lock eyes. Jesus looks at him. That's the beginning of the dawn of a new day. Jesus looks at Peter. He doesn't disengage. He doesn't throw Peter away. And then Peter's anger dissipates into intense grief, and he goes out of the courtyard and he weeps bitterly because he loves Jesus as you love Jesus. He loves Jesus. He was there when Jesus said that he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father and his holy angels. He has committed a great evil. He has truly sinned. He was disloyal and selfish and unfaithful, and it was a form of betrayal. He did just what he thought he could never, ever, ever do. And he will never be anybody who didn't do that. You know what I mean? He can't reverse history. He can't not be the one who did this. But Jesus looked at him. And looking at the rest of Scripture, I think I can safely say that there were certain things in that look. First of all, when Jesus looked at him, what's he communicating? I still love you, Peter. It hurts that you denied me. And there is a future for you. I am making all things new. I will restore you. And he told this in, 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 in seed form earlier, before the denials. He said that I'm going to restore you. And that you're going to turn, you're going to, and you're going to help your brothers and sisters. And you're going to create a movement and a kingdom that will outshine what we had between Jerusalem and Galilee. The old is gone, but there's a new thing coming up. God is doing a new thing. And the body of Christ is going to be worldwide. Every tongue and every tribe and every nation is going to be making kingdom advances until I return. And you have no idea how glorious it's going to be then. And I believe in seed form, a lot of that was contained. In that look, when the rooster crowed, Peter looks at Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter, and it dissolves him. Jesus has similar words for you. Some of you have blown it, and some of you have blown it bigger 
perhaps, than you think you ever would be capable of blowing it. Maybe a few years ago, you thought, oh, I could never do that. <laughs> Boy, what's their problem? <laughs> they need counseling. Wow. You know? <laughs> and then here you are. <laughs> How did I get into this? How did I end up here? I'm doing the very thing I thought I could never do. And you'll never be. Again, you'll never, you'll never be that person that didn't do it. You'll always be the person that did it. And you have yet to really believe the gospel and apply it to this thing in your life that you're thinking about. Why did I do that? Why, why, why? And you're angry at yourself. And rather than weeping, you're just mad, stinking mad, because you think that maybe somehow I can fix this. Somehow I can, I'm better than that. But I wasn't. What went wrong? I thought I was farther along. I thought I was more mature. I thought I was incapable of doing this sort of thing. And then Satan comes along. He gets some traction into those thoughts, right? You know, he begins to, to say some more things. Hey, how could a Christian do that? You're probably not one. And you've got to answer him not with, well, okay, I might have done that, but I've done some other good things too. That's not going to work. You know, your own conscience will poke holes in all those other good things. There's only one thing you can answer, and that is with the gospel. You know, when I, when I see myself and my sin, when Satan tempts me uh, to look within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. When I realize how deep my sin goes and how big I've blown it and how many people I've hurt and how I've caused pain, upward I look and I see Jesus Christ who has erased the guilt and the condemnation and everything in order to make me new, in order to make me clean and to give me a new life of obedience. You can't go back. You can't go back to the way things were. What they say is it ain't what it used to was. You can't do that. You can't go back to the way things were, but you can go forward into the gospel. Jesus has paid it all. All. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he has washed me clean. Clean. I am clean before the Lord. It's the dawn of a new day. He looks at you. He engages with you. He doesn't throw you away. He is making all things new. You take your sins to Jesus where they're really dealt with. And this dawn of a new day in Peter's life, it started with that look and then it began again at a men's prayer breakfast in Galilee. If you turn to John 21, you can read the story. We, we don't have time to really go into it deeply there, but this is, the, this is quickly what happened. Peter and several other disciples are out there doing what they do. They fish for a living. That's how they, you know, that's how they eat. And so they're out there, and, and, and normally a, a professional fisherman spent all night fishing. That's what they did. And, P, and uh, Jesus comes out on the shore, but they don't know it's Jesus yet. And he says, so... How's it going? And they're saying, it stinks. 
We haven't caught a single fish. We haven't caught a crawdad or anything. Nothing. Nada. And Jesus says, why don't you put your net on the other side of the boat? And John and Peter are sitting here in the boat thinking, wait a minute, this is starting to sound familiar. Well, yeah, you know, the, the, the boat begins to, the, the net begins to fill with, I think John said it was 153 fish. Peter says, oh, crap. Because John goes, it's the Lord. And Peter says, I'm not ready to talk. I'm not ready to face him. He is holy, and I'm not. And he jumps into the water. This is beautiful, really. He jumps into the water. Well, Jesus has breakfast with these disciples, but then he says, Peter, come on, let's go, let's go take a walk. John says, can I come too? Just stay a few steps behind, will you? Jesus wants to look at Peter again. He wants to engage with Peter again. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Well then, feed my sheep. Right. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I already told you the first time that I love you. Okay, then feed my lambs. And then he says the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is upset that Jesus has asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter says, look, look, fine. You know all things. You know where my heart is. Whatever you say, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. What's he doing? He is offering a restoration that is in perfect sync with the denial. Three denials, three opportunities to say, yes, Jesus, I And then, and then, see what's happening here. Jesus does not come to Peter, and he doesn't say, Peter, okay, listen, I purchased your forgiveness, but i got to tell you, I cannot trust you as a leader. You're too great of a liability. You're nothing but trouble. So just stay in the background and enjoy your forgiveness. And don't go anywhere with it. You know, don't just, just try not to mess it up again, okay? You've done enough damage already. Have you heard that little voice in your head? Do you see that anywhere in John 21? It ain't there. Because what Jesus does for Peter is he restores him to leadership. He says, I want you to be a pastor of my people. Peter even writes in, in his letter in the fifth chapter, Uh, shepherd the flock of God that is under your care, I say as a fellow elder with my other fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God that is under your care. Jesus restores Peter all the way to leadership. Leadership. Full restoration. It's the dawn of a new day. And it begins again when a few days later, the Spirit of God comes and fills Peter and gives him the power to speak about Jesus and to see thousands of people turn away from their sin and turn away from their violence and embrace Jesus Christ and live the new life of the kingdom. When Jesus restores, he does it right. When Jesus restores, he does it bigger than anything you could ever imagine, abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine. 
Because really, this is not about Peter, is it? It's about the whole kingdom. And you find your place in the kingdom, just as Peter has. It's about the whole kingdom. Through Jesus' death and resurrection and sending of the Spirit, Jesus has started a new community of which you are a part. And your baptism, I mean, I hope you remember your baptism as you saw the baptism happening up here. And maybe you were little when you were baptized and you don't remember, but you remember that your parents brought you for baptism. That mark, that seal, that sign distinguishes you as part of this worldwide kingdom movement. And so when you think about that, and you think this baptism, uh, it's, it, it, make, it, it, it marks me as part of the kingdom where people of every nation become a family willing to suffer together, labor together, and rejoice together, and worship together because Jesus is worth it. So it's a new day for you. No matter what shape Jesus finds you in today, He's got a message of love and restoration and future blessing and impact. There is no Christian who has to be put on the shelf and stay there until he dies. It's not a biblical category. It's not in there. So I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. Jesus has a look for you. He looks at you and he says, I will restore you and you will make an impact and you will have a future. And that future is going to be a blessing, not a coin that you spend on yourself, but a blessing to every tongue and tribe and nation under heaven. Until the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And he who began a good work in you is going to complete it until that great day of Christ Jesus' return. We are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Gaze into the face. Ask the Lord to open up your spiritual heart to see the face of Christ, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And find that look. And let the look of Christ begin to tell you the truth about yourself. That Jesus isn't going to put you on the shelf. That Jesus has a plan to make you a blessing to all nations. Enough said. Let's pray together.